Welcome to Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. We're so glad that you are listening with us today, and we hope that this message is a blessing. Let me, let me ask you a quick question before we jump into the text. And um, the question is this, have you ever been a part of a group that went through some drama? Whether it's your neighborhood, um, a friend group, the church, coworkers, friends, family. Like, have you ever been a part of a, of a group that splits, where you have group A and group B? Group A says things about group B. Group B says things about group A. Other people are caught in the middle. If you have, you know it can be absolutely exhausting, right? Well, the church that John is writing to has experienced some division. There there are different groups, and and they're actually debating and splitting over um, important things. So it's not petty stuff, but at the end of the day, that relational drama is is causing exhaustion. And so the last thing that John's going to do in this letter is he's going to encourage, or he's writing to strengthen people who feel overburdened and under-encouraged. And so like I said, whether this is your first Sunday here, you've been to half of the sermons or all of the sermons, if you have ever been in a group that has experienced relational drama and you felt that exhaustion and you need some strength, there is something for you today, all right? This is to strengthen those of us who are in Christ through God's word. So if you need strength today, if you feel overburdened, under-encouraged, there's something for you today. All right, so let's pick up in verse 15, um, or verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter five, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, let me, let me spend a little bit of time breaking this verse down. When he says, I write these things, These things is the whole letter. He's saying the whole letter that I've written, I've written for this purpose. I write to you, so this is the audience, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, he's writing to Christians, those who believe in the name of Jesus. Real quick, let me unpack what it means to believe in the name of Jesus, all right? The name of Jesus means all of who Jesus is and all of what Jesus has done. So it's, it's Jesus, all of who he is, fully God, fully man. And it's all of what Jesus has done, that he lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the sinner's death that we deserved. He rose victoriously from the grave. It's believing in all of who Jesus is, all of what Jesus has done. So the audience is Christians. So he says, I write this letter to Christians that you may know. Right, that word know is used seven times in verses 13 through 21, and that means he's writing for them to have confidence. So to know means to have assurance, to have confidence. He says to know that you have. That word have means to presently possess something. Right? So it doesn't mean a future thing that you're grasping towards or hoping with uncertainty. It means to presently possess. He says that you may have eternal life. In eternal life, as we talked last week, it's that this is not just a continuation of our existence after this life. 
Eternal life is what we experience when we are with Jesus. And so when we are with Jesus, our joy is complete. We experience peace. We complete, we experience satisfaction. We experience healing. We experience blessing. We experience all the things that we are longing for. And that, that eternal life of experiencing life with Christ is something that we can experience now. So John says in verse 13, he's like, look, all this stuff that I've been talking about is for you to experience life with Christ now. I want you to experience life with Jesus. So the question is, is how can we experience life with Jesus? And so specifically for this church, it's, excuse me, it's how can we experience life with Jesus when we're exhausted? How can we experience life with Jesus when, when we know that we have relationships in our life that are broken? How can we experience life with Jesus when we're overburdened, when we're under-encouraged, right? And so he's going to give us three things that are applicable in all seasons of life, but especially when seasons are hard for us to find strength in Christ, for us to find life in Jesus. The first thing is seen in verses 14 and 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so in verses 14 and 15, John is talking about prayer. So the first thing for us to find strength in Christ, the first thing we need for experiencing life with Christ is to have a relationship with Jesus. He's talking about prayer here. And prayer is one of the primary ways that we experience our relationship with Jesus. It's, it's one of the primary ways that our knowledge of Christ doesn't just sit intellectually in our minds, but moves into our hearts and is experienced relationally. So when we pray to God, we experience eternal life. We experience life with Jesus. And so this is crazy because when you read these verses, he says, look, when we pray, God hears us. Right? It's so often, it's so easy to think that God is distant and disinterested in our lives, that he has more important things going on. But what John says here is when we pray, when we talk to God, when we listen to God, when we are in relationship with God, like he is near, he is deeply invested, and he hears all of our prayers. So I, I don't know about you, but have you ever, have you ever reached out to someone and got um, no response, which made you think that maybe you're not that important to them? Um, I was at a, a pastor's conference a couple of years ago, and there was a couple of hundred pastors there. And after the main sessions, they had breakouts. And so some of the breakouts had over 100 people in them. But the breakout that I went to, there was only 15 of us. It was like the, the guy that was leading it, no one knew who he was. And the title was kind of interesting. So I went. And as I sat there in this breakout session, he was giving knowledge and gold nugget after gold nugget and wisdom and all these things. And I was going, man, how does he know so much? And, and I found myself going, I want to learn under this guy. I want to know what he knows. And then halfway through the breakout, he goes, look, you guys. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Don't go to conferences. You're like, wait, what? 
we are at a conference. And he goes, no, no. He's like, a couple of years ago, he goes, I stopped going to conferences. I took my conference fund. And what I would do is I would email a pastor that has been where I am and is where I want to go. And I would email them and say, hey, I would love to give you all of my conference fund. Can I fly out to you or drive to you and just hang out with you for the day? And if just give me a day and I'll give you all my conference fund. And so he started doing that, just hanging out with pastors and then listening to them and letting them speak, not to generally to a hundred people, but specifically to him and his circumstances. And he's like, that's how I gained all this knowledge was from just that one-on-one time. So fast forward, he's now a big deal and he's made it. And he's kind of like a, a guru within church leadership. And I was thinking, I was like, I should email him and give him my conference fund. And so I emailed him and I was like, hey, I would love to give you my conference fund. Remember that advice you gave in that little breakout of 15 people? Like, can I come and hang out with you for the day? And nothing. I sent him an Instagram message, nothing. And then I find out that one of my old youth from when I was a youth minister is actually one of his 12 interns. So I was like, hey, Evan, could you, could you reach out to him, put a good word for me? He's like, absolutely, I got you. So he puts in a word for me, nothing. And I found myself going like, I just don't think I'm that important to him, right? Like it didn't work. It's like I reached out, got nothing in return. And I wonder how many of us falsely feel like that's how God relates to us. How many of us think like, man, I'm throwing out prayer requests and just God's not listening. He's just not responding. But here's what we know. If we pray, God hears us. Like every request we make to God, God answers. He answers with a yes, a no, or a a not yet. Because he's a good dad. I mean, I think about it with, with my kids. One of my favorite things to do is to do a family bike ride. Like we, we live in a neighborhood with, with great streets. And so we load up the bikes, pump up the tires, and we just go explore the neighborhood. Right? And so if, if, we're, um, if we're at the end of the school day, like school's over, they've done their 20 minutes of reading, they've done their homework, like everything, there's no activities after this. And they say, dad, can we go on a family bike ride? Do you know what the answer is? Yes. If it's 8.30 at night and they're fighting bedtime and they just don't want to go to bed and they're, they're like being rebellious and they're like, can we go on a family bike ride? You know what my answer is? No. No. Brush your teeth for two minutes and don't fake it. Like, I don't want to pay for a cavity. Like, brush your teeth. Like, we're going to bed. It's like the answer is no. But let's say that we're on our way to school right? We've got the whole day ahead of us and, and, we're, and the day has been good and like we start off on the right foot and they're like, dad, when we get home, can we go on a bike ride? It's like, not yet, but later, right? It's kind of in the same way, like God answers all of our prayers with yes, no, or later. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is like, okay, well, if God answers prayers with yes, no, or not yet, how do we get God to say yes more often? And that's what John says in verses 14 and 15. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So when we pray according to God's will, that's when God answers our prayers with yes. All right, and so if you ever read in John, when Jesus, John 14 and 15, when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. To pray in Jesus's name is not a magical formula. It's not like, God, give me a million bucks. He's like, did you say in Jesus's name? Like, like, like in Jesus' name, give me all the money. It's like, no, like that's not, a, what praying in Jesus' name means to pray in Jesus' name in light of all of who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, and all of what Jesus has done, he lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, rose again from the grave. It's, it's, it's praying in accordance to the will of God, all right? And so this is what John defines here. So praying in Jesus' name is praying in accordance to God's will. And so if you wanna know God's will, you need to open up God's word. 
And so we open God's word to know God's heart. And when we know God's heart, that will begin to shape the things we pray for. And when we pray in line with God's heart in accordance to his will, we will find that he begins to answer more and more of our prayers with yeses. Right. And so, so, but I know like as you read God's word, um, not everything in God's will is laid out for us. Right? There are some things that are absolutely clear. It's like, God, should I date this person? They're not a Christian. The answer is no, you should not date that person. I don't care about missional dating, right? Like, should I forgive this person? They hurt me and I feel like I should be able to hold a grudge. It's like, no, you shouldn't hold a grudge. Yes, you should forgive them. Like there are things that are clear to us in scripture. Other things are more principle, right? Like, so if you think about like a principle, you might say like, God, like I feel led to give to this ministry. How much should I give? Well, if you open up God's word, it's like, Sometimes people are given 10%. Sometimes people are given 50%. Sometimes people are given 100%. God doesn't say one's better than the other. It's like, ah, like, well, there's principles to give um, in response to Christ's generosity towards you and allowing the abundance of that to overflow in your heart the way that you give to others. And so it's more of a, not an exact answer, but more of a principle. And then other things, just they're beyond our will or beyond our knowledge. Like how many of you ever have ever prayed for healing for somebody? Has anybody ever prayed for someone to be healed? Right, like when I pray for someone to be healed, like I'm praying in accordance to what I know of God. I know God's all powerful. I know that God is good. And so because of that, like in my finite knowledge of seeing my friend or a person's life and praying for the healing, I'm like, God, I'm trusting that this is what's best. And so God, I know you can. I believe you will. And so I'm praying in faith that this person will experience healing. God, would you heal them? But at the end of the day, like, that's not clearly laid out for me in Scripture. And so, therefore, like, if it doesn't happen, I have to trust God's greater knowledge. I have to trust God's greater wisdom. And so, for instance, like, I've prayed by someone's bedside before when they breathe their last breath. And so, like, maybe God was saying, they've ran their race and it's time for them to come home. Or I've prayed for someone who has a perpetual, like, ailment in their life. And I'm like, like, God, just take it away from them. But what if God wants them to walk with a limp for a season of life so that they learn to become more dependent on him. It's like, hey, I want them to be healed too, but like I also want them to learn dependence on me, and so I'm gonna use this for a season. Like, There's things that God knows that we don't know, but because we read his word and know that he's good and know that he's powerful, like we can trust his wisdom knowing that it's greater than our own. All right? so, but as you read this, the, the word of God to understand God's heart, what you'll find is God's will is not like a tightrope. Have you ever slacklined before? It's the worst thing ever. Like you have a you have a like a, a strap that you tie things down on with a truck between two trees, and you step on it, and just your leg starts doing this, and then you you try to get your next foot on it, and you're like, okay, and then you start trying to walk, and you're like, I got four steps, then I fell off. And and so often I think people think that that living in the will of God and praying the will of God is like this this tightrope. But the truth is, is that as you read God's word, it becomes more like a highway. Yes, there are boundaries to the left and to the right, but there's so much room for us to move forward towards him. And so we read God's word to know his will and we begin to pray in accordance to his will. And we know that God hears us and he loves to answer our prayers that are in line with his heart with yeses, right? So the first thing for us to experience eternal life is to begin to relate to Jesus, to have that relationship with him, which we experience through prayer. The second thing we see is in verses 16 and 17. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask 
and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. If you're reading that, you might be in, you might be thinking, how is Jeff going to turn this to be applicable? Right? Like, um, this is a confusing verse. If you've ever tried to get a knot that a kid has tied in a shoe out, you know that's really complicated. This is like a theological knot that you're like, I don't know how to untie what he's talking about here. Because if you know Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But it says the wages of not just some sin, but all sin is death. And then now John says that some sin leads to death and some sin doesn't lead to death. So is John contradicting Paul? Well, there's, there's two possibilities here. One, it could be talking about physical death in John, um, in 1 John 5, verses 16 through 17, which means physical death, some sins will literally take your life. You commit this sin and you're gonna die, right? Other sins, they might harm you spiritually, but they're not gonna physically kill you. So it could be talking about physical death. It also could be talking about spiritual death, which means that the sins of a Christian will not lead to death because they are forgiven, and the sins of a non-Christian will lead to spiritual death because they are not forgiven. So maybe it's spiritual death. I'm not exactly sure what the best interpretation is. I lean towards that second one, but I could be wrong, right? So when we did our Bible study class two weeks ago, something I said was, don't get so caught up in the obscure that you miss the obvious, okay? Don't get so caught up in the obscure that you miss the obvious. And so what's obvious in this verse is we should pray for those who are in sin. We should pray for those who are in sin, okay? And so this, the first thing to experience eternal life is, is, is living in that relationship with Jesus through prayer. The second thing is loving others like Jesus would love them, okay? So it's, it's knowing Jesus relationally and it's loving like Jesus loved. And so what we see here is when someone is in sin, we should commit ourselves to praying for them. And let me tell you why that's so important. When people are in sin, right, it's affecting other people, okay? Sin affects us internally. It's a form of self-abuse. It affects us vertically. It affects our relationship with God and how we experience him. And it affects people horizontally. It affects the relationships around us. So sin is affecting other people. And so when someone is in sin, chances are it's, it's affecting you or affecting people you know. The easy thing to do is to walk away and be like, you know what? Like, I don't have time for this and to walk away, right? But what happens is when you choose to walk away from someone, you tend to take the posture of the critic. And when you take the posture of the critic and you talk about someone in their sin when they're not around, what you do is you begin to tear down the relational bridge between you and that person. That relational bridge begins to crumble, okay? But when you pray for someone in sin, what happens is instead of your posture being that of the critic, you begin to have a posture of compassion. And when you begin to see that person as God sees them, and to see that God is committed to them knowing and experiencing eternal life in the same way he's committed to you knowing and experiencing eternal life, your demeanor towards them changes. And so when your posture towards them is, is that of compassion, that relational bridge stays intact. Now, I've been following Jesus for, for a long time, and I can tell you this. 
I'm amazed by how often when you pray for something that God invites you to take part in what you're praying for. Like, I'm just telling you, like when you begin to pray for something, don't be surprised if God invites you to take part in what you're praying for. So if you're praying for a friend who is in sin or someone who is in sin, don't be surprised if your heart of compassion is then leveraged by God for him to leverage you to be a part of pulling them back to him. Right? And so this is what it looks like to love others. It's, it's, it's being able to have that relational bridge through a posture of compassion and knowing in God's timing when to cross that bridge to help someone come back. Let, let me explain something that I wanted to clear the air on this for 12 weeks now, and I just I keep forgetting to do it or not doing it well. So let me do my best to explain this. Um, there is a growing trend within Christianity that when someone is in a sinful lifestyle, when I, when I say a sinful lifestyle, I'm saying like, Let's call sin what the Bible calls sin, okay? And so someone's in a sinful lifestyle and a Christian's response is, we're just supposed to love them. Like, I, I don't think it's our job to say anything. We're just supposed to, to love them. And what they mean by that is like, let's just sit passively by, okay? And, and so when, it, when we think about what it means to love someone, it's not, it's not passive. So if you read um, one of the, the verses that Jesus quotes in the great commandment, someone's like, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He's like, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. He's like, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, and he quotes Leviticus 19, 18, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you think about what does it mean to love others? Well, if you go back and read Leviticus 19, and you look at verse 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself, if you back up a verse and look at verse 17, what you'll see is people in Israel firmly believed that the sin of one person could affect the whole camp. They firmly believed that the sin of one person didn't just affect them, it could affect the whole nation. And so if someone was in sin, that was a serious deal. And so they would seek to correct that person or to draw them back to God. So verses 17 and 18 of Leviticus 19 show that to love someone means to draw them back to God, not to passively sit by, but to actively bring them closer to Jesus, okay? And so an example of what this looks like is if you read John 11, it's the story of Jesus's friend Lazarus passing away. So Lazarus dies, he shows up a couple of days late, and there's two sisters, Mary and Martha. One of the sisters walks up and she's like, if you were here, you could have saved my brother. And, and she's crying. And, and then the shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus did what? He wept. So here we have Jesus in this, this moment of hurt and pain, and he's loving through the ministry of tears. He's present. But then the next sister is like, Jesus, where were you? If you were here, you could have saved my brother. And he says, did you not know that I'm the resurrection and the life? He speaks truth. And so, so what you need to understand is like there's a time to sit, there's a time to speak. And so I believe that this is a model for us as Christians. What it means to love someone is like there's a, a ministry of tears and a ministry of truth that need to be held in balance. So yes, like we want to sit with people and be present and have compassion towards them, but there's also a time to speak truth to help pull someone back. But when we take part in what God's doing to draw others to himself, especially those who are running away from God by praying for them and being willing to be actively used by God in that process, that helps us to experience eternal life as well. 
So eternal life, that, that life with Jesus is experienced through knowing Jesus in a relational way and living like Jesus lived or loving like Jesus loved. Like those are two things that God uses to help us live in the presence of Jesus. And then in the midst of that, there's one more thing we need to know. So look at verses 18 and 19. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What John's showing us here is that when he says we know that everyone who has been born of God, he's, he's talking about Christians. We know that Christians, and he says that Christians do not keep on sinning. Um, it's important to know that he is not saying that Christians do not struggle with sin. The, the idea of to not keep on sinning means that you do not live in a sinful lifestyle. And what I mean by living in a sinful lifestyle, I mean that you are living in sin with no desire to change. It's like, this is how I'm gonna live my life. I don't care what God has to say. I'm gonna do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want. And I want people to accept this of me and celebrate this in me. And so when you do that, like that mentality of like, I don't wanna change. I don't wanna be more like Jesus. I wanna live in my sin. John would say, you're not a Christian. That mentality is not possible for those who have been gripped by the love of Christ, right? But that's what he means by keep on sinning. It's that, that mentality. But as Christians, we still struggle with sin, right? Like I've said this before, I'll say it again. Sin describes some of what we still do. Saint defines all of who we are, right? But we want to fight sin. But in our struggle with sin, we need to know that he, it says, but he who has been born of God, here that he is talking about Jesus. We need to know that Jesus protects us. That word protect means to keep. And so when you live the Christian life, when, you, when you're exhausted and when you know your own sin struggles, it's so, oft, it's so easy to be like, has God given up on me? Like, have I, have I gone, am I too far gone? And, and so in this, we're saying, we need to remember like in our, in our exhaustion, in our own struggles, that God is committed to protect us or to keep us. So a question that I've received over the years has been like, Jeff, can I lose my salvation? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with sin, and I'm just wondering, like, is God done with me? And, and the, the truth is, is, like, could you lose your salvation? You probably could. But the better question isn't, can you lose your salvation? The better question is, can God lose a Christian? To which the answer is always no. God will not lose you. John 10, verses 28 and 29 says that you are in his hands, and he will not let you go. So when you think, what does it mean for God to protect you? Even in your struggles, even in your exhaustion, even in your hard seasons, when you might be doubting God's love towards you, remember that you are in God's hands and he will not let you go. He is fully committed to you. So when, you, when you're in a hard season, when you need strength, remember God wants you to experience eternal life. And the way that you experience eternal life is through knowing Jesus in a relational way. It's through loving others like Jesus loved and remembering no matter what's happening, good or bad, hard or easy or in between, no matter what, God is committed to protecting you. He is holding you and he will not let you go. So the big idea today is that when, with whatever you're going through, like, I don't know what you walked into this room with today. Like, I don't know what you walked in this room today, but I'm, I'm guessing the vast majority of you would say, I do feel overburdened and under-encouraged. And I want you to know, remember today that God is committed 
to you experiencing eternal life. God is committed to helping you experience eternal life. So let me, let me wrap up with just two last things real quick. Look at the final things that John says in verses 20 and 21. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. I right, said so real quick, just remember that God has given us understanding so that we know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. These last two words, when he talks about understanding and knowing Jesus, and then he talks about not um, giving yourself to idols, the last two things that John says is, is basically summed up in this. You guys, our Christian life isn't meant to be one where we coast. Like, we shouldn't live our Christian life experiencing life with Christ with just coasting and letting go and letting God. We should be constantly pursuing knowledge of Jesus, and we should be constantly fighting sin. So to summarize, experiencing eternal life comes from walking away from your sin, verse 21, and continuing to walk towards Jesus, verse 20. To experience eternal life, keep walking away from sin and keep walking towards Jesus. Let me wrap up the whole letter with with this story. Um, when, when I lived in Georgia, my first church, there was a couple named Harry and Eloise that adopted me. And they're like my adopted grandparents. And when I do weddings and I think about two becoming one, Harry and Eloise were like the completion of that. It's like I, I saw that race come to its completion in their marriage. To know Harry was to know Eloise. To know Eloise was to know Harry. And so I used to just go to, to grandma's house, like over the river and through the woods, like their house was that house. And I would sit on their back porch and just sit with them and just get wisdom and get um, just stories. And so one time I was sitting on the back porch with Harry and I just gotten engaged to Lucy. And I said, Harry, like, like I want to be married to Lucy like you are to Wheezy. Eloise Wheezy was her nickname. And I was like, like what's, what's some marriage advice you'd give me? And he goes, Jeff, We've been married for over 60 years. And he goes, and to this day, when I say, Wheezy, tell me something I don't know, she still has something to tell me that I don't know. And he goes, never stop learning about Lucy. I'll never forget that. And so to this day, Lucy and I will sometimes be on autumn dates. I'm like, Lucy, tell me something I don't know. And, like, and I plan on asking that question until the day that we both breathe our last, last breath. But if you think about that, if, like, if an earthly relationship for over 60 years can continue to be explored and not fully tapped out, how much more can our relationship with Jesus be fully explored and never tapped out? When I think about the type of church and the type of people that want us to be, let's be people who keep knowing Jesus, not for who we want him to be or who culture tells us he is or who um, other religions say he is, but let's know Jesus for who he truly is because life with him changes everything. So let's know Jesus and let's love like Jesus. God, thank you for your word. God, it's been an honor to teach um, chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this letter that was written over 2,000 years ago. But God, it's, it's not old, it's eternal. And because it's eternal, we know it's timely. And so God, we believe this is exactly what our church needed for this season. And so God, in a, in a world where everyone has an opinion about who Jesus is, God, we wanna know you for who you are. But God, we don't want to just know you in our heads. We want to know you in our hearts. We want to experience you relationally, God. So let us be a church that's, that's close to Jesus, 
God, let us be a church that experiences eternal life, not just in the future, but experiences it now. So God, let us be joyful people. Let us be people who are finding healing in the gospel. God, let us be people who are finding fulfillment and satisfaction and peace. And God, everything that comes along with Jesus, God, and let that be an attractive force in our community. God, that other people would long to have what we have. So God, help us to know you and to be changed by you and to live for you and to live like you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about us, you can check out our social media or website. Grace and peace to you.